I was speaking to a colleague the other day at length and found myself elaborating a crisis of conscience. I was talking about the fact that my postdoctoral work is up at the end of October and I'm trying to figure out what to do next. I know that I want to teach. I think I belong on the faculty of a college where I can focus on teaching and mentoring young people, where I can write and undertake theoretical work on consciousness, where I can follow my calling. On the other hand, I've been humbled over recent years by the difficulty of securing such a position. In an important sense, I'm an unknown quantity. I haven't been at the front of the lecture hall in a long time. I've been in the lab and doing this podcast and so on. The only way to become a great college instructor is to go and do it, to study it, to get better at it. That means taking adjunct positions which don't pay well and don't provide the health benefits I need to take care of my family. Because of the latter concern, I've been thinking about looking for a full-time position even if it's in industry. I could become a staff scientist for a company, for example. I have felt the need to be open-minded and responsible. I need a solid income and health care. But God damn it, I discovered in that conversation as it progressed that my conscience demands I stay on the course of my calling. I've come a long way. I never pursued this direction so that I could make a lot of money and have a lot of security. If I wanted that, I should never have become a neuroscientist. Making a move on behalf of a professional career at this point in the game, at the expense of what I have sacrificed so much to, it's not right. How can I sell out when the price on offer is so low? It isn't as if the industry positions I might pursue are rolling out the red carpet to riches. I might make a little more money than I do now. And you know what? Pretty much everyone in my life would be satisfied with that. A reasonable salary and health benefits doesn't sound too bad to the members of my family, and I understand that. But if I don't stand up for my vision, nobody else is going to do so. It seems like it's my own conscience against a world of material interests. God, whoever you are, grant me the strength to stay on my path. I often speak of myself as distinct from Jesse. I am like the steward of Jesse's legacy. I have responsibility for what Jesse can become. I don't want to let him down or sell out his potential. Any inbuilt talent or intelligence or sensibility that this brain has made possible for me to enjoy or to suffer is not mine to dispense with. In my stupid meandering way, I have come a long way with this Jesse on a journey that is as much spiritual as it is intellectual. I am called to something. The problem of consciousness is called to me. The call to teach and learn, to be a scholar, it's, it's been heard. Jesse was born and raised an American, came of age at the turn of the 21st century at a time and place where it was possible to accrue an education and make a contribution to the deepest question humankind has ever pondered. I have the burden and the blessing of being the mind of Jesse. I really wouldn't trade it for anything, at least I hope I wouldn't. I am not a person, but I play one in real life. I only get one shot at this, so I better get it right. In the previous episode, I submitted a question. I asked, if what I am in the final analysis is a point of view upon contents, not a person, and certainly not a personality, then what does it mean for me to be authentic? The existentialists describe authenticity as the degree to which one's behaviors accord with their beliefs and desires. That definition will do well enough for our purposes, and I believe it captures implicitly both the strengths and weaknesses that might be born of a person being authentic. On the face of it, I admit to an allegiance to this concept. 
I want to be authentic, and I don't respect people who come across as inauthentic. I feel gross and psychologically uncomfortable when I see myself being inauthentic. So clearly this term, authentic, is picking out a concept that is important, but I don't think authenticity, as the word is often used, is without serious problems. The concept of authenticity is dependent upon what is meant by the self. The self, in this context, is a construct, one with a narrative, biographical characteristics, and a set of personal dispositions, among other things. In a previous episode on humility, I explored the idea that self-identity, or egoism, is connected to the experience of anxiety, especially death anxiety. This identification with self is an error, but a perfectly natural error to make. Moreover, on some level, it is critically important for survival and healthy behavior. This makes the self-construct an interesting problem, as I think about consciousness and its literal place within the physical universe. In the last episode, I suggested that Atman might be a word in Indian philosophy that specifically describes the undeniable self, the self as point of view upon content. If I am Atman and you are Atman, then authenticity is a difficult concept to apply. My beliefs, my desires, as a physical manifestation conjured by Jesse's brain, it is an illusion to think that his beliefs, attitudes, and desires are mine. But the story can't be that simple, not if I, the conscious mind, have anything to do with it, not if my will actually makes a difference to Jesse's actions. Reason suggests that I do make a difference, so I can make a difference for the good or for the bad, at least in accordance with my learned and inherited values. When I think deeply about this situation, it gets a bit confused. Where I begin and end is not a simple question. Mindfulness meditation is one tool for breaking the spell of selfhood. In Waking Up, Sam Harris wrote, quote, The self that does not survive scrutiny is the subject of experience in each present moment, the feeling of being a thinker of thought inside one's head, the sense of being an owner or inhabitant of a physical body, which this false self seems to appropriate as a kind of vehicle. Even if you don't believe such a homunculus exists, perhaps because you believe on the basis of science that you are identical to your body and brain rather than a ghostly resident therein, you almost certainly feel like an internal self almost every waking moment. And yet, however one looks for it, this self is nowhere to be found. It cannot be seen amid the particulars of experience, and it cannot be seen when experience itself is viewed as a totality. However, its absence can be found, and when it is, the feeling of being a self disappears." Unquote. Yes, Sam, but the feelings survive. The contents of consciousness persist even when divorced from a sense of self. This is what I've described as the undeniable self as point of view. A subjective point of view persists even in the case of ego loss, as might be discovered in a mystical psychedelic state. Authenticity, though, implies fidelity to the self-construct. After all, the point of view has no dispositions and no personality. If I am the point of view, emergent in this human brain, then whose personality am I exhibiting? How do I be myself rather than acting out of character or inauthentically? Should I be true to Jesse's desires and motivations? What makes them worth being authentic to? I didn't decide upon my basic values and preferences. Are they the best ones to have? Or might they present limitations to my freedom as a conscious mind? Wouldn't it be better if I had a taste for brown rice and grilled chicken rather than a preference for french fries and buffalo wings? 
Given the choice, if I were to order the former off a menu, I would feel a sense of pride at having made a responsible decision. I wouldn't feel as if I was acting inauthentically. But why not? Am I not acting against my own desires? Well, it's not quite that simple. If authenticity is a matter of acting in accordance with one's beliefs and desires, then I must believe something about brown rice and grilled chicken that motivates me to make that call. So I'm being authentic after all. Belief carries a lot of weight, then, in being authentic. I think the problems I see in the way that authenticity is commonly applied come from an allegiance to personal desires, coupled to ideological beliefs that are not in line with objective truth. From the beginning of your consciousness, the first moments of your existence, you have implicit values and desires. Whenever that occurs in the development of your nervous system, this is built in. Let's imagine that this occurs shortly after birth, though it probably starts much earlier. Lying in the bassinet or on the bosom of your mother, everything is new, unnameable, and out of focus. You are the point of view upon some strange experience of feelings and perceptions. You are hungry or frustrated or scared, or some combination of confusing emotions. Untrained, unmolded, you are thoroughly authentic in the existential sense. You act according to your desires and beliefs. Rousseau would say that you are perfect and uncorrupted, as society is a corrosive influence upon who you naturally are. This strikes me as a foolish and anti-human perspective. It denies the value of relationships in the realization of human well-being. Even more, it implies that learning is necessarily an act of corruption. This, I think, is the conception of authenticity that gives me pause. It's as if there is a static true form, which is you. If you undergo change, then you slip further away from your true self. Isn't this just another way of saying to stay in your lane, not to go outside of your station? I'm reminded of talk about being, for example, authentically black, as if being a soulful, intuitive spirit rather than a rational and dutiful one, has something to do with ethnicity. If it's not obvious to you, yes, the appeal to authentic blackness is plain racial essentialism, which is to say, ignorant and racist. In fact, I would argue that this idea is deployed socially in order to force conformity, rather than to serve authenticity. So what is the good meaning of authenticity to which I do feel aligned? It begins, I guess, with my allegiance to the truth. I have this conviction that the truth is absolutely sacred. I am very uncomfortable with dishonesty, whether it's in service of politeness or real deceit. I don't like it. I started this discussion with a brief definition of authenticity as the degree to which a person's actions accord with his beliefs and desires. Beliefs are in reference to the truth. They are the truth as we understand it. As new information is accrued, beliefs about the world must necessarily be updated. Since there are way more things about the world of which we are ignorant than there are about which we are experts, an allegiance to the truth implies humility. If I hear myself coming across as arrogant and overconfident about something, I feel the shame of inauthenticity. It's the exact same feeling as coming across defensively. It's embarrassing, even if no one else observes it. Okay, so that's the beliefs part. Beliefs are our best link to the truth. Sophisticated belief entails knowing what you know and where you are uncertain. Desires? Well, there are immediate desires that amount to vices. They could serve me in the moment, but destroy me in the long term. They must therefore be resisted. So to me, authenticity means acting in accordance with my beliefs about what is true and what is right. Okay, 
so I bring up rightness or goodness. If I examine my conscience carefully and I think things through, I can get an explicit idea of what I believe to be good. Goodness in this regard is a matter of values. As I move through life, encounter new situations and different people, my values become updated just as my beliefs do. I might suggest here that my beliefs refer to knowledge and my values refer to wisdom. Both are accrued, antithetically to Rousseau's notion, as a matter of learning and development across the lifetime. It's kind of incredible when you think about it how one's values here and now are the implicit values of one's direct ancestry under the conditions of this specific lifetime, a confluence of nature and nurture. The problem with ideology, religious or otherwise, is dogma. It provides a set of beliefs that must be held onto as if they were certainties. This is poison. It is inauthentic, essentially by definition. Often people become captured by ideology either by submission to an authority, and therefore not being personally responsible, or by self-manipulation, by just faking it, being a mouthpiece for long enough that they begin to believe the things that they keep repeating. It's easy to feel lonely when you have no ideological family, as provided by a political or religious tribe, but abandoning all of that is necessary to being authentic. So authenticity is necessarily an individual enterprise, something I must negotiate between Jesse and myself in terms of the universe into which we are thrown. Jesse is an organic machine, and I am the mind in attendance. Perhaps together, we make up what is meant by a person. I've been reading from a book by Carl Rogers as I ponder the meaning of authenticity. It's called On Becoming a Person. It was published in 1967. Describing the process of psychotherapy, Rogers writes, quote, I observe first that characteristically the client shows a tendency to move away hesitantly and fearfully from a self that he is not. In other words, even though there may be no recognition of what he might be moving toward, he is moving away from something. And of course, in so doing, he is beginning to define, however negatively, what he is. It will be clear that the very expression of this fear is a part of becoming what he is. Instead of simply being a facade, as if it were himself, he is coming closer to being himself, namely, a frightened person hiding behind a facade because he regards himself as too awful to be seen. Unquote. Rogers goes on, quote, Another tendency of this sort seems evident in the clients moving away from the compelling image of what he ought to be. Some individuals have absorbed so deeply from their parents the concept, I ought to be good, or I have to be good, that it is only with the greatest of inward struggle that they find themselves moving away from this goal. Curiously enough, a number of individuals find that they have felt compelled to regard themselves as bad, and it is this concept of themselves that they find they are moving away from." Unquote. I should interject a thought here. Rogers specified the parents in this passage, but it could just as well be a cultural ideology to which the individual has become indentured. For example, consider the call to white guilt that our society has gone through in recent years. I must believe myself to be bad because of the color of my skin, and wish therefore to be seen as one of the good ones by my social network. I'm not permitted to be myself, as I am, for better and worse, flawed but having my own worth. It could just as easily be Christianity, within which I see myself as a deplorable sinner in desperate search of redemption. 
Rogers speaks of a compelling image of one, what one ought to be. This is the charismatic hypnosis of ideology. Rogers writes, quote, Other clients find themselves moving away from what the culture expects them to be. In our current industrial culture, for example, as White has forcefully pointed out in his recent book, there are enormous pressures to become the characteristics which are expected of the organization man. Thus, one should be fully a member of the group, should subordinate his, individually to, his individuality to fit into the group needs, should become the well-rounded man who can handle well-rounded men. Over against these pressures for conformity, I find that when clients are free to be any way they wish, they tend to resent and to question the tendency of the organization, the college, or the culture to mold them to any given form." Unquote. Yeah, I can relate to that. I do indeed resent my country's division into two separate political tribes with their own claims to purity, and neither of which has any room for free thinkers. If I am to be accepted by the left, among the ranks of the professional elite and the college educated, I must not criticize the excesses of the left. If I am to be accepted by the right, among the working class and the country folk, I must do nothing else. Embedded in either tribe, I am invited to be inauthentic or outcast. I hope the time will come when a nation of individuals will notice that the outcasts make up the majority. Rogers writes, quote, but what is involved positively in the experiences of these clients, I shall try to describe a number of the facets I see in the directions in which they move. First of all, the client moves toward being autonomous. By this I mean that gradually he chooses the goals toward which he wants to move. He becomes responsible for himself. He decides what activities and ways of behaving have meaning for him and what do not. I do not want to give the impression that my clients move blithely or confidently in this direction. No, indeed. Freedom to be oneself is a frighteningly responsible freedom. And an individual moves toward it cautiously, fearfully, and with almost no confidence at first. Nor would I want to give the impression that he always makes sound choices. To be responsibly self-directing means that one chooses and then learns from the consequences. So clients find this a sobering but exciting kind of experience. Unquote. He goes on, quote, The second observation is difficult to make. Because we do not have good words for it, clients seem to move toward more openly being a process, a fluidity, a changing. They are not disturbed to find that they are not the same from day to day, that they do not always hold the same feelings toward a given experience of person, that they are not always consistent. They are in flux and seem more content to continue in this flowing current. The striving for conclusions and end states seems to diminish." Unquote. He said that freedom to be oneself is a frighteningly responsible freedom. Damn right. That's a good description of my crisis with respect to my scholarly career. I demand freedom to pursue my own vision, and yet that makes me responsible for the consequences, whether they're for the best or not. Finally, Carl Rogers describes the mo movement of clients in effective psychotherapy toward openness to experience and acceptance of others. He writes, quote, To be that self which one truly is involves still other components. One which has perhaps been implied already is that the individual moves toward living in an open, friendly, close relationship to his experience. This does not occur easily. Often as the client senses some new facet of himself, he initially rejects it 
only as he experiences such a hitherto denied aspect of himself in an acceptant climate can he be tentatively accepted as part of himself, unquote. He continues a bit further, quote, closely related to this openness to inner and outer experiences in general is an openness to and an acceptance of other individuals. As a client moves toward being able to accept his own experience, he also moves toward the acceptance of the experience of others. He values and appreciates both his own experience and that of others for what it is, unquote. I suppose this episode stands out as different from its peers. Perhaps I've drifted too far from the core function of the podcast. I'll try to get it back on track moving forward. In any case, thanks for indulging me as I try to figure out what it means to be a real person, to be authentic. Perhaps this endeavor belongs in a private journal rather than a public forum. But hell, nobody's listening anyway. <laughs>